Welcome to Lineage. I'm your host, Shani Jamila. On this show, I'm talking across generations with some of our most imaginative thinkers about how New York City impacts their work and how their work impacts the world. I invite my neighbors and fellow artists to come over to my home, sip some tea, and chat. Today, my guest is the renowned visual artist, Derek Adams. Derek is an award-winning artist who works in performance and video and sound, as well as painting and sculpture. You can find his work in the permanent collections of institutions like the Met, the Whitney, the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, and the Birmingham Museum. He's represented jointly in New York by Luxembourg and Diane and Salon 94, as well as the Rona Hoffman Gallery in Chicago. I had so much fun having him over and taking a deep dive into his work. And I'm so glad you're here to join us for this conversation. And now, on to the show. What is your philosophy on how to be an artist? Um, it builds all the time. Um, I kind of take a lot of my cues from previous generations of artists who were, you know, pre-internet era artists. Um, artists who are kind of coming into their own, I mean, well, coming to, you know, coming to the global um, stage now, um, who are seniors now, but artists who have been making work since the 50s and 60s without anybody really giving them the proper um, platform and that they continue to do it for 30, 40 years. And the thing is about the older generation, they would have a show anywhere. They would have it in an empty space. They would have it in a cafe. They would have it in their friend's loft. They would just do shows. And their friends would come and they would drink and they would talk about the work and they would have really interesting conversations about process. And sometimes they would have friends who were historians who might write the press release for it or write a little um, pamphlet for the show just to have some documentation. But it was all done within the community. And to me... That's why I think it's really needs to, to still think about that. You still need to think about that as artists when you're making work. Like I think start smaller and then expand versus thinking about this expansion of greatness coming right out of the gate. I really like the idea of kind of the kind of um, anonymousness of artists being able to walk down the street and still be successful with making their art and paying their bills and traveling the same as other celebrities or other people who are professional creative feel like singers or fashion designers or <clears throat> people who are more public artists are just becoming public now. Like this is like a new thing. Like this is not something that has always occurred. It's probably like maybe not even 10 years now. I had this moment um, when um, Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, the movie about the exonerated yeah. Central Park Five, um, they did like a screening at the Apollo and um, we were waiting for people to take their seats. It was packed. And I saw um, Carrie Mae Weems walking down the aisle. And I had this moment of just watching her walk. I was just far enough away that I couldn't call her name. Yeah. Um, But I just watched her. And I said, in this space, she gets to just be one of the black women in this room. Yes. You know, yeah. but in her 
professional sphere. Yeah. She is Carrie Mae Weems. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. And yeah, all yeah. that that means, like yeah. the, the amazing impact that she's had on so many of us, and and the, the her work is recognized with such reverence. And I thought that's the perfect balance. Yeah, you know, yeah. to be able—that's what success looks like to me, actually. Yeah, to be able to just be in the community. Yeah, and then also to be able to have your work respected like that. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that was always my goal, but I think that it's becoming a challenge um, for my generation because the previous generation, which would be Carrie Mae and, and other artists who are pretty um, progressive and, and interesting um, subjects to, uh, to interview and to do stories on, I feel like this particular time, the age that I am, which, you know, and the range of artists, which are late 30s, 40s, are seeing more prime candidates for like profile stories on, you know, in magazines and things like that. And so there's a lot more of those groups of artists being, I guess, interviewed and profiled and dressed in couture clothing and photographed. <clears throat> and I think that's just part of like the same as when you see an actor or or music performer who's also similar age, similar um, background. I think that it's good that people are recognizing visual artists as being um, contributors to to culture in that way. But I also think that it's a lot for younger people to see, younger artists in their 20s to see, as like, this is how you, this is what making it is. And if you're not doing this, then you're just not doing anything. Like, I think that's what they're thinking. I don't know if that's true, but for my conversations I've had with younger artists, I think that's one of the challenges they have is visibility or feeling invisible. Well, certainly there's this whole celebrity culture that's happening, but I think also some of that may be exacerbated by making a life for yourself as an artist in New York City in particular. Yes, and I think that and from outside of New York, people look at publications that feature artists in New York. So I think that also is a challenge. But I also, because I've tra- been traveling a lot, I'm starting to see the art community spread beyond New York into other cities like Philly and Detroit and Baltimore and, you know, L.A. Not that they weren't there before, but I think that global culture, um, Brazil, um, the continent of Africa, European culture, I think that the the younger generation have been able to connect with each other in a way that was unable, we were unable to, or the previous generation have been unable to without actually being there. And I think that, to me, I think that's the biggest benefit of the internet and social media is that now I'm seeing, um, you know, young black artists from Brazil communicate with black artists here in New York or in Baltimore. And I, you know, and they, oh, do you know this guy? Do you know this, this woman? Like, I think that collectively black artists have been able to um, just communicate with each other more and see what each other, what they're doing from you know from where they are but also i think they're starting to realize there's the community the creative community is expansive in a lot of ways and then some people can be in new york new york for some people is just too much and they need to be in a space that's a little bit more quiet a little bit more um slower you know and that's, i definitely think yeah. it's a kind of city where it's either for you or it's not 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think the city will tell you fairly quickly once you've moved here if you're not yeah. from here already. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, whether or not it is for yeah. you, like it will either feed you or you will feel drained, drained, and not and and unable to catch up. It's a city where it's a track. It's like one of those. It's almost like when you are on um, like a, um, what do you call those those conveyor belts that it starts going really fast. And conveyor belts like at the supermarket oh, uh-huh. where the stuff is going or if you're a tread thing at a, at a gym. I think New York is like one of those things where it starts off, wherever it starts off, you get on, you have to stay on. And if you jump off, you have to jump off on your feet like versus it. like, like <laughs> you know, you might fall. Like I feel like when I get off the train here, even when I'm traveling, when you get off the train or the or plane here in New York, you take off. You get out of the, you get out of the plane, you just start going fast. That's you just, right. it's like almost like you... You kind of adopt the speed of the city, and some people look at that speed as negative, but some people f- feed off of that speed. I'm laughing because I'm picturing those those YouTube um, videos. I don't know if you've ever watched them. They're just silly, but you'll see somebody that get on the treadmill. And fall off. And like, but they don't just fall. Like, yeah. Their feet are, you know, yeah, exactly. Like exactly. They start flipping when they fall. Like, it's, yeah. it's not a small thing. No, <laughs> exactly. And I think that some people being in New York is over... You know, it's overwhelming. And even yeah. just the way people leave, like the people leave New York, it's always like a declaration of leaving New York. I'm like, huh. just leave. Like, you don't have to, like, tell everyone you're leaving or, or like, contemplate, like, should I leave? Should I not leave? I mean, you can just leave. You know, like any, any other city, people just leave the city. But New York, I think a lot of people have contemplation, like, should I leave? You know, it's like guilt. Hmm. It's like almost like you're defeated. You're saying like I lost or <clears throat> I couldn't keep up or and that's fine. Like I think it's nothing about you shouldn't feel any remorse or uh, or um or at least any kind of sadness about leaving the city if you think you can find something somewhere else. You know, that's the thing. If you you should believe I get emails all the time from people saying like I'm um I'm thinking about leaving New York. What do you think? And I always say do you want to leave? And they say, yes. I say, well, leave. You know? Um, it's that simple. Like, you know, I think that it's not as um, complex as people make it. But I think that this city is a place that people have this feeling of failure when they leave. Well, I think it's about, like, what it signifies in the artistic imagination, right? Because for so many generations, this was the place where you would go to make it. Yeah, 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 yeah. This this is that city on the hill, proverbially speaking. And so, like, and then also as a visual artist, particularly like when you began in the in the early '90s, you came here to do your your academic work at Pratt in Columbia. Um, it was it probably occupied. Well, actually, let me just ask: what what space did it occupy in your own imagination as a young artist? How were you thinking about the move from where you grew up in Baltimore to New York? It was funny because when I was in Baltimore, I didn't have like a big creative community. I had friends who were writers and had some artists, but we it was a very small group of people. But we were able to to unify ourselves at a particular place in my I guess like late teens, twenties before I decided to move here, but. I really felt really as if I was kind of a, not an outcast, but someone who was not easily to blend into the community of Baltimore that I grew up in. 
and my friends, we all had this idea of ourselves as being like outside of the mainstream part of Baltimore, just yeah. because how we dress, what we talked about. But when I moved to New York, I totally changed a lot of things about me. Like I kind of wanted to be less unique looking. Really? Yeah, I wanted to be like more normal because I always felt like I was not normal inside, period. Like I always felt like I'm not a normal person. And I thought that was a great part of being an artist. But I felt like in smaller places, you kind of wanted to be identified as being uh, not a normal person because everyone, I kind of, I feel like I wanted to kind of set myself apart visual, visually at spaces where I, where I grew up that were very um, basic in a lot of ways, the way they thought about things, the way they dressed. It was more of my response to that when I was living there. But when I moved to New York and saw a lot of other people who kind of reminded me of people or the way I looked in Baltimore here, I said, I don't really need these look like that anymore. I can just, like, it's not even about that anymore. It's about you're just creative. Like, you don't have to look creative to be creative. I kind of want to be more anonymous here. I don't want to be, I don't want to stand out. I didn't want, I didn't want to be, um, I didn't want to be spot, spot lit, you know, as a That's younger person, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think because people move here and there's a sense of kind of finding your tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And when I came here, I actually met, when I first got here, I went to Pratt and I hung out with some artists. But I, when I first moved to New York before I started school, I ended up uh, friending, befriending a group of just, I guess I call them like, I guess creative, creative, creative group. They were actors and dancers and all, you know, mostly uh, people of color who all lived in this area for green and they all look pretty normal. Like they, I mean, whatever that's supposed to mean, like everyone looked pretty, like we were just trying to think about paying our bills and like, we didn't have a lot of creative jobs. A lot of us had jobs working in places that we had to have a certain dress code. So it was really more about doing what we had to do in order for us to keep doing art. Fort Green was very different back then can you describe what your Fort Greene was when you first came here in 93 yeah yeah uh, I, I think it was a really great book that um what's the writer who lives in Fort Greene um Nelson George was working yeah Nelson George wrote a really good book about the renaissance in the 90s in New York and Brooklyn I feel like it was it was our Harlem renaissance moment for our oh generation. it was it definitely was it was a place where there were quite a few uh, artists living, you know, along the um, the Navy Yard and warehouses, as well as other places in Flatbush and other areas of Brooklyn, where uh, a lot of Black artists had spaces and they would have events, you know. And the whole idea of like social practice is really funny, because I think that most Black artists at that time were all social practice artists for the most part. I think that I think I think that. Social practice is just a, a term, a term that they've been able to identify, um, which really um, is a definition of black creative community at large, because all the things that I attended in the '90s and even up until the early 2000s were all things that were based on the community 
surrounding wherever the artist was doing and bringing that community into the space. It was, you know, a space that was free, open to anyone. Um, it was, you know, art from artists who were totally committed to their practice um, and were willing to also um, to share their space with musicians playing music while they had openings. So it wasn't just about looking at art. They understood that their audience may not necessarily be an audience who was interested in just looking at art, you know, and they were interested in keeping the people there. How can you do it? You serve food or drinks, and then you end up creating this culture of um, engagement and exchange that is not just about art, but art is the entry point into these conversations and the history that can happen from all these different things happening together. So it's like art as an experience. Yes. Not just a thing to go observe and walk away from. Yes, exactly. And I think that the music that played around some of the works kind of helped to really activate the experience that the viewers had with the art. And, you know, and also people who are now, you know, well-known celebrities like Erica Badu and Common and Most Deaf, you know, um, Ishmael from Digable Planets, like a lot of people who would just be walking around Brooklyn, hanging out. You see them, Rosie Perez, Chris Rock, Spike Lee, Jawai Lee. Like it was a thing where you felt when you saw certain people that you were in the right place. Like this is the right place. Like this is this is happening. You know, it wasn't. And the thing is, it wasn't even like it, it was an expensive place. That was made it so great. It was like not expensive, and all the creative people that you you supported and you went to go see perform or you would go see their movies were walking down the street in front of you and they were very comfortable in that place and you were very comfortable around them and you didn't feel like they were um, like um, so removed from who you are and what you were doing that you couldn't have a conversation with them or they would, they would stop and talk to you. It, wasn't, it was just like an energy that was happening that was really more about Understanding everyone's, um, everyone could be an an essential part of what's happening. It's kind of like you move here not just to to make a home here, but you move here to become part of a thing. Yes, I think it's the main thing. You move here with the hope that you can fit in somewhere, and fit in is not saying to to follow. Fit in almost like a, like a chain link. Like, how can you help? Like, how can I, what do I have to offer? Like, how can I make this stronger? Um, And this, you know, by what I, you know, even as an artist, you think like, okay, what can I talk about? What can I bring to the table that, you know, like for me, I'm like, my friend does this. My one friend who paints, they paint this. This person makes this. Like, I'm not going to make that. I'm not going to paint that. Not because um, I can't paint it, but because they have it covered. So I need to find another place to, to to talk about something that will become an extension of that conversation, not to repeat what they're saying. So it's like filling a niche, or I've heard you talk about it as, as like finding the void and stepping into that space. and creating. Yeah, trying to figure out like, what can I what can I bring? It's almost like when people have potluck. You don't want everyone bringing potato salad and everything is all potato salad. <laughs> everybody can't make good potato yeah, exactly. salad, Yeah, exactly. That's the same. Yeah, so I'm like... <laughs> You know, you, you call and you find out, you know, if you, or if you know your friends, you know what they're going to bring. You know, I know my family, 
certain people only can bring certain things. Like Mm -hmm. you can't switch up and say, you know what? I'm not making that this time. I'm going to make this. Like they're like, no, don't experiment on us. We want what you're famous for making. And I think for, for me as an artist, I've always thought like that. I always thought that, you know, in a, in an exhibition, if there, if there happen to be all, you know, all black artists in the show, um, it's interesting to see the expansiveness of that conversation and what that could really be about. Like, you know, I think that, you know, when you start thinking about the uh, transatlantic slave trade and, and, you know, and the whole experience of, of how um, the blacks who were here came to be here, um, that was a multicultural experience in itself because everyone was not from the same place who were, who was on the ship. I mean, actually some people weren't even able to communicate with each other because they spoke different languages. And so I think that black people um, from the beginning have been always very, very diverse and multicultural in the way that we've communicated with each other. And I think the same with contemporary culture. There's black people who are southern, northern. There's black people from various economic um, perspectives, um, generationally, um, certain gender uh, interests um, internationally. So I think that is important for for the world to see that in order for them to understand the, <clears throat> the complexity of who we are and everything we could bring to the table to build a more expansive understanding of not only black culture, but just human culture on a global level that I think people are lacking in um, having a, a more co- a comprehensive uh, representation of those things. Um. I saw an interview as I was prepping for the show today where you were asked to describe yourself in one word <laughs> and your word. Do you remember what it was? No, I don't remember. But I, what, was, what was it? <laughs> you said I'm a facilitator. Oh, yeah. And I thought to myself, wow, what an interesting choice yeah. of a word. Um, can you delve into, first of all, would you still identify with that as your primary um, means of describing yourself and yeah. what does it mean for you? I definitely see that. I think I do it too much sometimes. I'm really a person who like to connect people with each other. Since I've been going home a lot this past couple of years, I've been really interested in my role as an artist and how I can be helpful with bringing some of the things that I've learned and I've been able to benefit from living here back to Baltimore and to allow people who desire to stay in the city um, some of the same level of exposure that I've gotten outside of Baltimore by bringing people into Baltimore or at least shining light on the city through my network of people. And so this year I purchased like two houses that I'm trying to convert into um, an artist retreat residency space. Oh, amazing. Not trying, I am. Yeah, I am. Not trying. Yeah, I just, mm-hmm. I purchased in January. It's a pretty big, big lot and property in the middle, in the city, in the area called Waverly. And the goal is to make it into a kind of a incubator space where artists come and creatives, not just, not just visual artists, but writers, musicians, dancers, whoever, as a kind of a community building space where workshops can happen there discussions around ideas of family and culture can exist. It's primarily focusing on black artists and black creatives 
um, but also open to allies and people who are um, on board with its purpose. And so I've been kind of re getting to know Baltimore again, you know, being reacquainted with the city I grew up in because I moved away in 1993. And so now it's like I'm coming back again, but they've done a lot of stuff. I feel like it's becoming a new art hub in a way. Like there's so many people who've left Brooklyn. Yeah, um, it's quite a few. to Baltimore. Yeah, I know quite a few. I see them. Like I was coming off the train from New York and who did I see but Shanique Smith getting (laughs) off the train coming from New York, but she moved it to LA and, and she was, she's from Baltimore, which is School of the Arts in Baltimore. And so I just coincidentally bumped into her, come off the train, and then I um, also um, had uh, met up with Alyssa, Alyssa Blount by Moorhead. Mm-hmm. She came by the property and just to see it. It's a community. Uh, Tahir Hempel moved there. Jamila and Pierre. They yeah, they're there. And- yep. And I, I was a roommate with Pierre. And undergrad. Oh, really? Yeah, we were roommates at Pratt. All, uh, I think three or four mm-hmm. years we were, uh, we were at school, mm-hmm. right on uh, 82 Clinton. So it's interesting, you know, that I'm going there and I, my dad's a musician there. So, you know, I go to places where he's playing or his friends are playing when I'm there. But I just feel like I just had like kind of a whole new regeneration of the city and um, and learning about the city and being more um, active and what's happening and hoping that this space will be like a place where people want to come and spend time. And, you know, it has quite a few rooms and spaces there. You know, it's also like I'm thinking about how Kahende's building up residencies around the world. Mm-hmm. He is now Black Rock Senegal. Yeah. He's going to Nigeria. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. You're creating this space. Like, what is yeah. it about creating a space for Black artists to create um, that has you know, folks who get the means and the ability to do it, investing in that. I think it's something that has been of interest to a lot of um, artists of my generation, like Titus Kafar and Kehinde Wiley and then Diasta mm-hmm. Gates, who's doing it. Um, I, For me, it's really about, again, being a facilitator, but also realizing that, you know, artists should be able to make work. They should be able to have conversations about art. It doesn't have to always be in New York. It could be outside of New York. It could be anywhere, but also it's just important to use your experience, your clout you've gained as an artist to kind of really expand exposure to other people. And I think that is something that's pretty common with my generation of artists that we realize that it's not just about, you know, selling art or exhibiting works. I think we we understand because we have this in between between the artists of the new generation, you know, the next generation under us and the people, but before us, this level of community that's very particular to our being in the middle, you know, and I think to me that. It just feels good. Like I don't, I don't get joy out of, um, out of celebrating alone. I don't get joy out of, you know, just having a monumental structure for myself. If I walk into one of the houses and see like people, like a, like a talking session, or like I feel like that's that's a plus, you know, to walk in and not be the facilitator, but let someone else be the facilitator and not be. Uh, 
the person who presented provided the space to me i think that's to me is good it's a good thing i don't have to actually be the person conducting anything facilitating is something that i always do too much of i think um but i also realize how um necessary it is to that it's done you know as artists sometimes you need to have people on your side on your corner even if it's just someone saying you know look at what this person is doing well you know from what i know of your story that's how you came to art too was that somebody stepped in and said look at this young man right yeah exactly yes miss wilson yes (laughs) yes your elementary school teacher who believed in you and created space for you yes so yeah so when i was in baltimore uh at Edgecombe um, Circle Elementary School, I had a young um, Black American uh, art teacher who was probably in her t- early 20s at the time. I think she was pretty young, as I recalled. She was very stylish. I remember that, too. Um, <laughs> and um, she was very uh, supportive of me as a young artist. And she would not only give me the the assignments beyond giving them the assignments that she gave the class, she would also give me like extra assignments to, to do. And those assignments were, would be more um, related to uh, citywide contests, whatever. And so she would give me things like energy conservation or, or she would do heritage related um, citywide contests. And, 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 um, and I won, one, you know, a couple, but I won a big one, which I got to meet the mayor and have my work hung in the mayor's office in Baltimore when I was in elementary school. And that was kind of <laughs> one of the first experiences of having, like, my work on a higher platform of, um, you know, space and art. And also, which really stuck with me more than just having that experience was the way that the school itself and the principle of the school changed the way they thought about art from that time because having that exposure and that coverage from City Hall made the principal of the school become more interested in art and to highlight art as a major component of the school. And I was able to do other art-related things in school, like making banners and other things that um, kind of came out of this um, exposure um, and I was able to actually also facilitate. Like I was able to get other artist friends who I knew in school to help me work on stuff. So people were like, "Oh, can you can you pick me for your um to work work on this Christmas banner or this? I want to get out of class. I don't want to be in class. So can you pick me? You know, because I, you know, I was a I was a um, a good student um, grade wise. So they allowed me to like miss some classes during certain holiday or special events to work on these banners that, you know, excuse me from certain classes. So that's when I realized the idea of like the position of an artist. I think that's, I think that's at the exact time when I realized the power of being an artist, being able to do what you want to do, because I liked to paint at the time and liked to draw and I was able to draw in school, but also being able to pick other people to draw who wanted to draw and wanted to be around that environment. And I think that beyond the award thing made me think about like the possibilities of what an artist could be. Even if I couldn't put it in words, I felt like I was, I had a power in elementary school and it was even like pulling people out of class, 
you know, I would just say, I would need this person to help me do the banner and they would just be excused for the day, you <laughs> That's know? Amazing. And I think that was pretty cool. In elementary school, I was able to do that. <laughs> and, you know, and I had, you know, a certain reputation in school because of that. That's dope. Mm-hmm. So you saw art and power as linked even from very early years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, so making the bridge from when you have this early childhood experience where you're thinking of yourself as an artist and what that can mean for your life and for the lives of those around you mm-hmm. to deciding that this is what I'm going to do as a way of living as an adult. Yes. Tell me about that arc. Well, I was fortunate enough when I moved here, but before I moved here, I would come visit. I have relatives here and um, my relatives are, are were really supporters of art. Like, um, when I was at Pratt, I majored in art education and painting. And so for my undergrad um, experience, I had to also work in public schools for um, for credit for school. So I worked in some public schools. I also worked teaching Saturday art school at, at Pratt on campus to kids in the community. And then after, no, and while I was there my last year, I interned at City Hall at the Art Commission um, just learning the business of art, and I was doing that. But in addition to that, I was uh, working at Fat Farm Clothing Store, and that was owned by my cousin, Russell Simmons, and his brother, Danny, who is an artist. And so I kind of came into New York very um, exposed to more of the New York black art scene. So it was again, it wasn't like a global scene. It was just like very local there were artists from a lot of different places outside of New York, but it was more of a scene that you had to be in New York to really benefit from it. So it was a foundation and the way the role that your family played in how yeah. you understand. Yeah. So I came in looking at art not as a monetary success, but just as a community support system. So I never thought of art being about commerce. I just never thought about art. I love that. Yeah. I just never thought that that was a possibility because all the artists that they showed or they were attached to rarely sold anything. And when they did sell something, it was not a lot. And wait, just for clarity, the they you're speaking of there is when you were working at Rush Arts. My job was really, I was the manager of the gallery in the first beginning part. Like it was Howard Dean and Pendell was one of the first shows we had. Um, we had a show, Afro Cobra had a show there. Ed Clark, uh, I think Frank Bowling had a show there. Uh, we had shows with artists who, you know, Herb Drentry, you know, we showed a lot of artists who were um, abstract artists, abstract expressionist artists, artists who may have kind of come into their own in the 70s and 60s where they were recognized, but they, did, they didn't achieve the, the, the ranking that they wanted to. When you think back on the lessons you learned during that time, what stands out for you? Um... Always make work without any expectation of an outcome. Yeah, and I think I learned that from them because a lot of them had like really troubling stories or troubling to them of why they weren't where they wanted to be. And I thought like, if I'm going to do this and if they're really good and they haven't gotten what they want, then I probably won't get what I'm going to get. So I better be happy with making what I'm doing. You know, I think being around them made me... It actually took a little stress off of me because I realized that, you know, I went to school to teach, which was not necessarily 
a common thing for artists um, to go to school to do while they were making paintings. Like usually artists I met in undergrad were painters who ended up teaching because they couldn't paint. But I, I um, again, I had a professor who was an undergrad who was my, my painting professor and, and freshman told me, maybe you should think about like art education and painting because you'll be able to keep painting because he saw how passionate I was about painting, but I guess he might have considered that maybe he needs a little bit more like direction or maybe he is not a good painter. I don't know. He might, he does something for the reason for telling me, I think he told me his son was also an art major and a painter. So I automatically just took that advice from that professor and I just changed my major from painting to art ed with a minor in painting as long as I was able to keep my studio. So I always knew that I was going to be painting, but I thought that unlike the other artists who I was talking to who have been making work for a long time, a lot of them weren't teaching because they were told, like, you can't teach and make art. Like, you know, some people were like, oh, you know, like the whole idea, like you can't, you got to be totally committed. I didn't feel like that. I felt like you can be committed to two things or three things if you can do it. Like, if you can do it, you can do it. If you can't, you can't do it. So so while you were at Rush, did you also have your own studio space? Were you making work at home? How were you doing it? I was making work at home, mostly. And I think I started making, after Pratt, when I didn't have a space anymore, I started making video. Mm-hmm. And I started by buying, like, a little small nanny cam from, like, the Wayne Reed or somewhere. And I started making, like, these black and white analog videos with uh, VHS and, like, um, uh, you know, like a digital, um, small tapes. I forgot what you call the little tapes. Um, and, um, and I was just editing in camera like that, just, you know, doing the video like that and just learning a little bit about effects. And, um, and that's how I ended up going to grad school because I realized I didn't have a studio, but I still wanted to make work. And I just started making video and I applied to grad school with these videos that I made with these nanny cams. And I got into Columbia for my MFA. Um, and then I still stayed at the gallery, um, at that time, again, it was not, the gallery was just becoming like more prominent within the art world. When I was working there in the beginning, it was still very, um, local. Um, but after grad school, a while in grad school, people started to see the gallery more because I was now at Columbia, which was a kind of a prominent um, platform for me as a young black artist, but also the things that I was I was I was attached to became more visible to people who had never even heard of Rush Arts, you know, which was surprising to me because a lot of the artists that were becoming popular within the art world, I first showed them at Rush, you know, like a lot of the artists. I think when Geishi Mutu's first solo show or at least one of the first two solo shows she's had was at Rush, I think 2000. I think Simone and Sana Musasana had a show there in 2001 or two. Um, Kehinde Wiley had a show there in 2000, a group show in 2001. He was just finishing Yale. Mickalene Thomas had shown there. Leslie Hewitt. Numerous people that I had no idea. I, I didn't know them then. Mickalene is the only person I knew because we both went to Pratt together. Mm-hmm. I graduated like a year before her, I think, or a year or and two. And y'all had birthdays around the same time. 
our birthday is the same day, January 28th, and we've celebrated our birthday together. I've, I'm pretty sure almost every year since we met at Pratt, I think in 1994 or five. Wow. Yeah. If we're in... if if we're in the same city, if we're in the same city, we've celebrated together. If we're out of town, that's different. But if we're in the same city, we've normally done like travel travel birthdays or or a dinner here or a party. We try to do things small or large, but we've we've managed to kind of keep that routine. Which because um, she, you know, she, I consider her one of my closest friends here, and she's also one of the people that when I first started to run the gallery. As a manager of the gallery, she would come and like help me organize. She would like come there, help me do the files. She would come and like help me because it was like almost like a thing like most young black artists never had that access right. to knowing the administrative part of the art world. Like everything was more about like being a, having a show, but like being able to like actually create a structure of administration that would help to promote this, you know, the work. And also, you know, I was. I started to realize the importance of having black writers um, write about the shows. And so I started, <clears throat> I was also able to start, you know, get grant money together to hire writers, young black writers to write some of the intro for the shows. Like Sarah Lewis's, for one of her first publications was for a show we did that. She wrote uh, uh, on the artist, LaRon Brooks, um, Courtney Washington. Like we, I was able to, you know, it was a small publication, but it was something that we did for every show that you could take with you. On your way to your current um, work, which has received such a, a tremendous amount of visibility mm. and, and um, you know, real success from any objective measure, right? Yeah. Um, but you got there because A, you didn't start looking for it. No. B, you <laughs> learned all sides of the business, right? From yeah. the administrative to the art making. C, you're in conversation with artists across generations yeah. about how do you do this thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. What else? Am I missing anything else? How would you say um, you got to where you are? You know, like, you know, for me, it was, it was not even, it was almost like a younger brother watching his older brother mm-hmm. or a younger sibling looking at the way that their older sibling is, is operating and deciding whether they want to do that or they want to like not do that based on how they see that person either suffering or excelling, kind of. And so I learned a lot of that, but I also learned, I think the most important lesson beyond all those things is to really think about why you're making stuff, you know, and what are you expecting from it? I think I learned that from being around those artists, you know, because although... I was excited to be around them and and felt like I was in a very uh, fortunate place. A lot of them all weren't always completely happy with the place or cared if I was excited about it, you know. And from that, it kind of kind of put me where I am now, just mentally as an artist, about what what is an artist, what does an artist do, like what you know. Like some artists stop making art if they don't get stuff out of it, and I can even imagine not making art regardless of anything. And even now, like I, I'm surprised when people ha- like my stuff now. Like I'm not really. Yeah, I'm not like. Um, I'm still very much like I'm making it because I like it and I enjoy it, and I think that I'm 
communicating certain things that I think are important, but I don't think that that I'm motivated to make work knowing that that's part of my making. Like, you know, sometimes I I see I'm making things, I always want to keep it all um, just because I feel like I grow observing what I made last. Mm. Like, I feel like when you take it away, it's almost like you're taking away, like, a key element to what's going to happen next. So how yeah. do you do that? Because part of the nature of the work is to sell it, and you may not ever see it again, depending on where it goes, right? I always keep some of the work from every series that I make that I think are the most integral parts of that series that I can use as a reference to making something new. And I didn't do that before, but then I realized in the past few years how important it was for me to do that as an artist, just as a way of having my own point of reference, not only with content, but just even the way of execution, you know. And when you separate, when you give it all away, it's almost you got to start over again. But when you keep a couple of things or a few things, you feel like you're just extending from that when it's in the same space, you know. So you kind of collect yourself. Yeah, I collect my, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it feels great to, you know. an idea, yeah, concept, yeah, I love that. I love that, you know, we're always we're always growing um, as creative people and as artists, and I think that it's important to let things go. It will be different for other people, and I've come to that reality too. Like, I'm okay with someone looking at my work and liking it because of the color. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm totally fine with that. Like, I think that I can have two um, two viewers. One viewer could like look at my work and cry of the joyousness of the, or the complexity of their relationship to the subject matter and what they're looking at and might have a conversation with me that's totally enlightening and and thought-provoking and reflective. And one person can be like, I really like that. Like, I really like the colors. Like, I totally know where I'm going to put that. Like, I, I mean, that's not the most ideal response that I would want to hear, but that is that person looking at it and also think that sometimes when people who have your work who may not necessarily get your work when it's in their place other people who will get it will see it mm-hmm. you know it's not just about everyone getting your work and honestly as an artist like if i knew everything i was doing every day i'm doing it i wouldn't be as intrigued and in, to do it if i knew i was working out i think i would be less engaged in it if i knew the outcome the last time I saw you um, was in Aspen. Yeah. And there was this panel about the valuation of art that Sotheby's had co-sponsored. And um, at the end of this panel, a woman raised her hand and asked a question about whether or not race or gender or other identity markers should matter in the valuation of abstract <laughs> yeah. art. And her thought was that it should not. As an abstract painter myself, I don't know. I don't necessarily see the identity of an artist and the object that they make as an either-or, right? Like, you can go to a museum, for instance, and see a piece of work on the wall and not know anything about the artist and like it or not like it. Yeah. But for me, when I do find a piece of work that I really love, I'm driven to know more about the person who made it, right? Mm -hmm. Because that informs the story, you know? Like, for instance, if I came across one of your floaties images, um, I would want to know that the way that you've talked about it is that depicting black people at leisure is a political act for you. Yes. 
for me, I'm willing, not all artists, but for me, when I le- when a piece leaves my studio, um, I believe that the context is kind of embedded in the work because I would love for a kid or a person who's not an art person to come into my show to see my piece and still get the, the I guess, the existential feeling of what I'm trying to convey in the work without necessarily knowing all the research involved in the work because like the floaters work was based on a lot of research dealing with like the history of leisure, the documentation of black people in, uh, in leisure, black people in water, um, thinking about, you know, looking at some of the images that I was able to uncover of um, historical figures at pools and, and like, like uh, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, um, realizing that these images are not the most iconic images that you see online when you Google these figures, you really rarely see them at leisure. You usually see them pushing pushing back from something or dealing with some type of oppressive structure, but you rarely see these figures who are important figures who dealt with a lot of challenges um, for us um, shown um in a certain level of, of dimensionality that represents them as a, as a, as a person, as a person, as a figure, um, that although these, these figures have, um, protested and have been arrested for fighting for things that they believe also take time to spend with that family at leisure. And the motivation for that work was based on one day after doing those re- that research as an artist, I just, I just hashtag floaties on um, Instagram in 2015 and there were no figures of black figures on floats on Instagram in 2015, wow. none. Huh. And, um, and as a result of not have seen those images, cause I kept doing it like every week I would hit like floaties. And then I started seeing that they weren't on there. And I just said, you know, like I usually do as an artist, I'll just make them, make them. Um, and that's how it started. I love that because I think that, you know, there's been such a history of, of trauma yeah. with black people in pools. You know, like I think back to when, um, was that Dorothy Dandridge who talked about sticking her toe in the water and then finding out that the pool was drained, you know, because of the idea of, of black skin contaminating the water. Yes. Um, or even like in a more contemporary sense. Um, I remember doing a short film once about... Um, that incident that happened in McKinley, Texas a few years ago with the Jerry Becton being thrown to the ground by her braids by the police officer. Remember? Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Right? So it's that like, was horrifying, yes. It was horrifying. Um, so there is this history of trauma, but I also love this reclamation of joy that you're embedding in the work because it's, yeah. it's that too. I mean, I think that just as a culture, we are more ambivalent to show joy than we, than we are to show pain. Hmm. because the conversations I've had about the idea of representing joy, I've heard from even even people from my culture that it's it could be misleading for people to think that we're at a good place to show images where we are having a good time. And it would show that it is not that bad. And I think I disagree because I think that there's always going to be images of us dealing with um, oppressive structures. 
I think that is usually the go-to for most artists of color because that is something that we feel is is very present around us. And I personally think that black people need to see more images of normalcy to kind of exalt this 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 uh image of us as real people who live real lives and have families and we have parties and regardless of the things that are happening to us in the world, we still find time to be human and to enjoy the things that every other group enjoy, um, regardless of outside forces. You know, it's not taking anything away from, you know, what's happening in the world and what we have to deal with. Like, I'm a black guy. There's no way I can be ignorant to what is happening in the world because I'm subject to it every day, leaving out of my house. But what I want to, when I come home, I don't want to look at an image of a black man being lynched on my wall as a black man. I want to see images of black men in power in my house. And I want to see black people, like everyone else gets to kiss to pick images that are positive depictions of themselves. So we should also have the ability and the freedom to pick images that are joyous as a form of, 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 of being political, to be able to choose you know, to be able to choose what we want to see and how we want to see ourselves at home or in our private space. You know, it's not going to take away from the reality that stepping out of the space makes you vulnerable. No, I actually really love that. I think what it does is it, it begins to kind of fill in the blanks, right? Not in terms, well, I guess I was going to say not in terms of our understanding of ourselves, but sometimes we need the visual reminder too, right? But just this idea of what does it mean to be fully human, right? Yeah. And so joy is a core part. One of the best parts about being black to me is is the the joy and the resilience the yeah. way that we can find, um, you know, like I think about black Twitter, right? Yeah, the way exactly. Yeah, exactly. Steps yeah. into some of the most painful things we've experienced. We still manage to find and create and live inside of joy. Yeah. Right. Under the most dire circumstances. So being able to give a visual image that speaks back to that. Nobody's living through 2019 thinking that black folks just got it good right now. No, no, it's, it's impossible. That. Right. It's impossible. And joy, to me, is just a balance, a psychological balance of mental health to have um, joy and to have um, time to, um, to think about um, optimism. I think the worst thing that can happen to us is for us to lose our radical black imagination Yes. I think that is what's in more in jeopardy than the politics that we are dealing with within society, which has always existed. Like the politics that we deal with, with the trauma that's surrounding the black community is is something that I don't see disappearing. But what I do see disappearing or could disappear is our willingness to imagine a world other than the world that we exist in and a world that could be ours because visual art is all about the power to imagine. And when you lose your power to imagine because of the news or because people are telling you that you should represent this type of imagery because they think people don't see it, I think that, if anything, I think, you know, maybe those images of unrest or trauma might be good for non-black people to see in museum or gallery spaces. But I think that as black people... Um, I don't think that we're really separated from those things. I think that all black people think about 
when they're getting pulled over on the street by a cop. Like regardless of you having money or not, from if they're if you're looking at the news or if you're a person who's in touch with reality, you will be fearful of those things or you would not be I mean, I think I think what's happened a lot with black people is that they're surprised not because of the incident. Their their response is really more because they know their self they know their worth. And I think that is the most shocking part for black people when they when they come against something that is oppressive is that we know that we don't deserve the things that we've have been given given to us or or shown to us. We know that we deserve better. So I think the pushback that we have when we are being approached by officers for random things or people in the supermarket calling us out of our name, we know that you know that we're better than what they're what they're saying. That's that's when we when you see a black person going off or being like, "What is going on?" It's because we know we know that this is not for us. We know that we don't deserve that. And I think that with my work, um, when I hear people saying that I'm my work is positive. I think it's kind of a shame that showing black people hot, happy is a sign of positivity and not normal normalcy. Mm. You know, because there's plenty of paintings of white people happy and other people happy, and people will never look at those paintings and say, "Oh, that's positive." You know, the fact that people think that my work <laughs> is positive shows up, you know, a dysfunction in society that we look at ourselves as positive because we're happy versus what we have been taught to look how to see ourselves. It makes me think of that whole um, Zora Neale Hurston quote about when she encounters racist people, that her response is less outrage and more shock that anyone would deny themselves the pleasure of her company. Yeah, that's what I feel. I feel like, you know, if I walk into a place and I'm uncomfortable and I leave, I feel like they have... You know, they it's kind of more so that they've lost the benefit of having a discourse with someone who they're not familiar with in a way that I could offer to the conversation. And and I and I, you know, that thing where, you know, they used to say, like, if I'm not there, it's not where it's at. I feel like the same thing when it comes to, you know, if you want to have a good time, you want to have an interesting conversation, you should never deny any race of person into your space, knowing that or realizing that they can actually leave something there for you to be useful in conversation than what you have already. So I always feel like it's interesting to see or even think that um, someone would want to be around a black person. For me, like I, I, like I don't even understand, like I've been in many spaces and I couldn't even imagine an interesting space without a black figure in it. So typically, this is where the show would end. I mean, it's a damn good note to end an interview on, yeah? But neither one of us was finished talking, so we just stayed in our seats and kept going. Here's a little peek into what happened after the show. That was really, really good. That was great. It's like we really had a great conversation with each other mm-hmm. that we rarely have when we see each other. It's I know, like, it's so hard. I know, like, I know. Just get in space and just move, and it's I know. so hard to do more than high, high, that pace you were talking about. In your, I know. You know. That's what... That's, I think that's one of the things that people tend to um, to deter people from staying is that that pace of trying to connect with someone and you can't, especially if you're a person who grew up in an environment where people connect with each other 
it, you definitely feel like you're not needed. Mm-hmm. But it's not about not being needed. It's just that everyone is just in a particular place. Like even with my peer group, like we don't see each other a lot. We rarely see each other. We make an effort to like send a text message and say, I'm just thinking about you just saying hello. And I think it's also part of, of growing up. You know, I think New York really, it it forces you to grow up. Even if you are grown when you got here, it forces you to grow up in a different way. Well, part of it is just growing up, right? Yeah, yeah. But then the other thing is, you know, we were talking about how people move here. Nobody's moving here to chill out. No, right? Like no. everybody comes here with a goal in mind. That goal might change and evolve. It probably should, right? Yeah, of course, right yeah. Over time. But... It's very easy to get in your silo and like in your own little lane and you have blinders on almost like yeah. I'm here to do this work. Yeah. And particularly for those of us who are working artists, like yeah. a lot of that happens in in a degree of isolation. Yeah. Which makes it harder to build community. Yeah. And that's the key, I think, to being here is finding a community of people, but knowing that a community might not be your final destination community. Hmm. Like, I think in New York, community change all the time. There's people I was really close friends with when I first came here that I'm not enemies with, but I don't call them. I see them, we hug each other, we see each other, but we know we're not going to hang out with each other. You know what I found is that people, like, it's such a transient city. Yeah. Everybody doesn't make it here, like we were saying earlier, right? So you might, my original community, when I came here, everybody left. It's not that they didn't make it here, they just left. Yeah, they just left. For whatever reason. yeah. So then I had to rebuild, and there's this constant kind of rebuilding that happens the longer that you stay yeah. there. You start, you start, and you also start to realize that this is my friend for now. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's not even a negative thing. Like, this is a friend from now because you may grow, and these, you know, and if, and I, and I honestly believe that the friends you keep are just friends who are growing with you constantly, and that's more like a natural. Thing, but I think that this city is really about not being. I don't think you have the same level of sentimentality for relationships here as you would in a smaller city. Like in Baltimore, my friends are friends from like grade school. Yeah, like in New York, even though I have friends who are from New York, they're not friends with their friends from grade school. I mean, I'll I'll see them, I'll be with them, and they might run into their friend from grade school, and they'd be like, "Oh, I went to elementary school with." Him or but you her. know what I think it is? Because when you grow up, your friends are friends of circumstance. Yeah. Right? Like they're whoever yeah. you happen to be around yeah. or whoever your parents know or whatever. Like yeah. my oldest friend I've known since I was two years old because our mothers are friends. And yeah. And so we came together and she, and we're still very close. Yeah. You know? But as you get older and as you move to the kind of city where you can find your tribe. Yeah. Then now friendships are born of shared interests and passions. Yeah. Or, totally. You know, um, it's just, it's a different kind. I think it's it's adult friendships, and then it's also being in a place where you have the capacity to connect with people who yeah. are also on it's your... It's important. Yeah, it's important yeah. because you start to think about, like, time and value of time. And you start thinking right. about, as you get older, you're like, you know, I don't have time for this. Like, this is... I don't need to be doing this. I think in New York, you always... You have that kind of, like, epiphany where you, um, you have that pretty often in New York where you're doing something and you realize, like, sometimes it's in your most stressful moment when you're doing something that you realize why am I doing this Mm -hmm. like this is really a waste of my time and I'm wasting time being with this person not that this person is even doing something bad it's just you realize like time like you realize you're wasting time 
you know, and some people, and you also realize what people, how people look at time differently here. It's heat. Well, right. Time matters differently here. I think that's absolutely true. Like yeah. the pace where you're always walking, even if you ain't going nowhere. Like I walk it like, boom. You just want to get there. You <laughs> want to get off. there. I think you're always thinking about like when you're walking here, you're thinking about stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you're not just like, when you go to other places, you're like walking like, la di da it's such a nice day. The weather is nice. But in New York, you're like, you're like, you might walk up through a park and the only thing you're thinking about is when I'm going to get to the end of this park. Huh? <laughs> That can be a problem, though. Like, I saw this yeah. video. Like, <laughs> yeah. one of those late-night shows. Yeah. They put some guy, and they gave him, like, a hat and put a camera, like a hidden camera yeah. on the back of the hat. And his only job was to walk slow. <laughs> like, you can't do walk that. walk slow during the streets of New York, and they just wanted to capture the rage that people would feel. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't, right? He walked oh, slow? Oh, my God. He just walked slow. Like, that was that was a whole gag. Yeah. And the, the, the way that people were reacting to it. Like, I feel rage on, on New York streets when somebody is walking slowly. It's like... Like, the New York sidewalks are like streets. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm like, stay in your lane. Yeah. And keep it moving. Yeah, don't right? stop. Like There's a traffic. But don't stop. Don't stop. Don't And look slow. around. Oh, I hate that when I do that. I'm like, <laughs> I, don't you, know, you have to always know that someone's behind you. You can never think that you just have the whole street to yourself. It's not necessarily the healthiest way of being. Like, I have to turn it off when I leave New York. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah. an attitude that's very specific to here. But then also, you know, the older we get, like, you're right. Time matters differently. I feel like at this stage of life, I have a different sense of appreciation and value for how I'm spending my time, who I'm giving it to, what I'm doing. Even, you know, like there's always fun things to do here. I'll be going out and especially in the summer, like I love to to be out with my peoples. Yeah. But more recently, since I've begun doing this work on on, um, genealogy and my family's lineage and, and now that I'm so I'm so in this project. Yeah. That when I'm anywhere else, I'm usually thinking I would rather be working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you feel like I'm when I'm when I when I leave New York because I would I did Rauschenberg residency this summer. Mm-hmm. I worked Florida, right? as soon as I got there. Like I was set up. Yeah, it's, I set up. I started working. I was working as vigorously or even more than I'm working here because I was isolated. And so as an artist, I always have to work. Like I just feel compelled to like do stuff with my hands or something that I feel like at the end of my time at places I have something to show for it being there. And I don't even think of it as being like finished work. I think of like, I'm going to start something here and finish it when I get back to New York. That's why I always think I'm going to start it here. So let me think about finishing it. Just think about bringing something back almost like, like bounty or something like you, Hmm. you like go hunting and you bring something back. And so I feel like when I'm making art, like I'm going to do a little something, some drawing, maybe do some outline, so when I get back, I'll have something to like fill in or something, you know. I love that way of thinking about it, like bounty. Yeah, I feel like you have to like bring something that's it doesn't have to be influenced by your. Some people go when they do a residency, like I had to do something that's influenced by the space that I'm in. But sometimes that's not what the what you are inspired by. You might actually bring your inspiration with you, mm-hmm. and you might just want to make work. And so it was really interesting because I always make work the same way I'm in. I do here. But at a residency, which is usually surrounded by like leisure, it's um, I don't really participate as much until I until I'm at a space where I feel comfortable with like slowing down what I'm doing. And this residency, I, they were like they were always like saying stuff like, um, "You're always working, like you just work all the time. Once you once you go, are you gonna go kayaking? Are you gonna go get in the pool? Are you gonna?" I didn't like. I'm like. No, I'm not really. 
one thing I explained, I said, listen, the same joy that I'm getting, that you're getting from doing all those things that you're mentioning is what I'm getting in my studio mm-hmm. painting. I feel just as happy in the AC on the beach house painting, looking out the window and seeing other people have fun at the, at the beach while I'm having fun listening to music in the studio on the beach. Um, I don't feel like I'm denying myself. I feel like I'm actually, this is my time I've actually been able to get for myself mm-hmm. that's separated from other people. Because being out in the world, you're subject to dealing with other people. You know? Right. And being in your studio, for me as an artist, I feel like that's the most um, empowering space to be in, is that you actually have these four walls around you and a doorway that you can close and you can do whatever you want in that space. And I think that a lot of people, if they had that benefit of like having a space just where they can just close the door and it's their own space and they can do whatever they want in there. You get to create your own world. Yeah, it's amazing, you know. Word. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps others discover this show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for information about live events, to see portraits I've made of our guests, and to become a patron of this broadcast. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com. The inaugural season of Lineage is brought to you by the generosity of our campaign supporters, with special thanks to our founder circle. Amika Carter, Vera Grant, Lawanda Hodges, Ayana Minor, Wendell and Helen O'Neill, Romani Rogers, Jimmy and Lee Sutton, Chantal Vera, Stacey Burton-White, and our associate producers, the BK Fam. Graphic design by Tony Moore Images. Original music composed by Cody Got Beats. Thank you.